feel a bit terrified to be in a room with um, international experts, I suppose, as I'm kind of seeing you now. Um, as Linda's um, said, my background is in digital education. Um, I teach on the MSc in digital education, um, and I'm also a graduate of that programme, so that's how I came to the PhD. I also have a background in university administration, so I have to take all colours of post-it note, because I'm kind of pretty much in all of those, <laughs> all of those camps at the moment. Um, okay, so today, this is what I think I'm going to talk about. Um, I've divided it neatly into three sections, and I thought I'm kind of talking about all of those things all of the time. So um, I want to look at the relationship between internationalisation and digital education, and I'm not sure if there is much of a relationship actually at the moment between internationalisation and digital education, because a lot of the literature that I've looked at has been campus-focused. Um, but I want to talk a bit about making, making things international as something which is um, effortful. Um, and look at that in contrast to some of the marketing um, materials that are around at the moment. Um, and then finally, uh, maybe suggest some alternatives, uh, a visual exploration of modes of international. Can you hear me at the back? Okay. Um, so one of my starting points that I keep coming back to actually is, is Ron Barnett's um, Imagining the University. This is from idea that ideas of the university in the public domain are hopelessly impoverished. Um, and that there are a small range of possible conceptions, too often without hope. And one of the things I think, um, one of the things I hope about digital education is that it gives us some, a, a sort of a different way of looking at things, or an alternative way of looking at things that is less um, campus-focused, um, and I suppose looking at international from a, from a different perspective, but um, I'm sure people in the room will give me some kind of feedback at, at, at the end of this. And this is the beginning, I should have said, of my um, SRHE project, I suppose. I'm going with my um, kind of conceptual approach to the project rather than telling you about all the details, but I'm happy to talk about that later if that's, if that's useful. So I started with... Um, there's quite a lot of pictures in this one. Um, I started with uh, a few Google searches um, because coming, I suppose, coming fresh from a digital perspective to internationalisation... Um, I found the term quite problematic, or kind of interesting. I kind of thought, well, what is this thing about how do you make things more international than they already are, or how, how do you make things international? What's, what's the kind of process that's happening in higher education at the moment? And, and also, what does the term international mean, and what is an international student in this context? Um, this was a Google image search for just for international. Um, as you can see, there are no, no bodies, no people, um, <laughs> lots of flags. It's a very sort of nation-state focused uh, representation, lots of maps. I'm not sure what these kind of like, I guess these are like networks, they're like uh, kind of digital, digital networks between countries. So then I thought, okay, well, I'll look at, there are no bodies in there, I'll look at um, international students. So this was the search for um, international university student, I think this one was. Now there are lots of bodies. <laughs> um, they're always happy, everyone's always happy in these <laughs> photographs. <laughs> yeah, they're always having a great time. They're always together in big groups, um, doing, you know, either studying together or just, you know, enjoying themselves or graduating together. And quite often outdoors, interestingly. Not in Edinburgh, they're not that much. Well, actually, this, this, week, <laughs> this week has been a lot better than a lot of people outdoors. Um, but I, this, I guess, comes from the marketization of higher education. These are images kind of from prospectuses and they, it's a very particular um, representation of what it is to be an international student. Then if you move on to look at uh, distance education, and I think I did a few searches on this, I did distance education, digital education, um, distance education student, or as you can see from this one, there are, there are far fewer bodies, um, and the bodies that there are, 
are on their own looking at computers. And that you see a lot in the, in the kind of marketing materials um, for uh, distance education. Mm -hmm. Students with laptops, you notice that in prospectuses for like photos of young students or um, students doing something with information. They're always looking into, into a laptop, but you never see what they're looking at. Um, or you don't get much of an idea about the context or what course they're studying. Because it, I guess it's quite difficult to, rep to represent um, digital uh, education. This one seems to come up quite a lot. Um, a mouse attached to some books. There's no, no body required in between um, <laughs> that, clearly. And then occasionally, again, these kind of um, network representations of a few people, or just a few laptops, again, without any bodies. Um, gathered around the world. So that was my kind of starting point for thinking about um, visual approaches, I suppose, to um, international education and digital education. Um, so, from the, from the literature, one of my starting points was this um, article, which I think Sue has referenced as well, is that right? Um, uh, from Sidhu and Dalalba, which is called International Education and Disembodied Cosmopolitans, and that's in your um, handout. And what I like about this article, actually, is a really, I recommend this if anyone hasn't, hasn't read it. It looks at um, perspectives from the UK, the British Council, from Australia, and also from uh, the US. And it's looking at um, education as an export um, and the discourse around that. And it's a, it's a really good read. But one of the key points that, that they make is that in the policy literature, um, I think Anna's, in these kinds of images that I've started to look at, is that um, there's an idea of international education as a series of disembodied flows, or it's a, it's a very kind of represented as a very smooth process, unmediated by the practices of nation states. And then with digital education, you get a kind of um, double disembodiment, if you like. <laughs> You've got students um, at a distance that don't that don't feature in these um, images. And what I'm trying to do is contrast that with um, this article. This article is by Linen Law, and it is called Modes of International. It's in your, it's in your hand out there. Um, and what they think about is um, how education has been done in the world. Um, and here they say, what might a different mode of international um, look like? Now I'll try and explain that article a little bit. Because they go on to say, which is what I'm interested in, it takes a lot of effort to make things international. It's not trivial from getting from A to B and holding together in the, in the heaving seas. Um, and I think that those images of happy international students contrast a little bit with my experience of international students where, not that they're not, they're not happy, but they've made enormous sacrifices to be at university. Some of them have left their families at home. Some of them have brought their families with them and are still um, managing to complete a PhD, which is amazing to me, having just completed a PhD. <laughs> um, so the Linen Law article talks about um, a kind of analytic process of making things international. So they draw on um, a particular example of uh, practicing medicine in Taiwan, and they look at um, the interaction between um, kind of Western biomedical science and Chinese medicine, and they, they sketch an example of somebody <laughs> working with those two different frameworks and making them work together. So rather than a, a sort of um, analytic framework, they call it a correlative framework of making um, Western and Chinese medicine work together. So I've been trying to think about how we might move from kind of easy pictures 
of what it is to be to be international internationalization to more kind of complex pictures but the other approach which I, I haven't looked at for today is, is cosmopolitanism um, but I think that has its own its own kind of issues as a term because I was thinking well why isn't cosmopolitan um, a more common term at the moment um, there's actually, I think I put in the reference list, there's a new book edited by Rosie Bredotti called After Cosmopolitanism, which deals with some of those, so those issues. What, where do we go from here, I suppose, if cosmopolitanism is problematic? So, okay. <coughs> I'm going to give a couple of examples from um, MOOCs. So this is the, from the homepage of the FutureLearn website. I'm assuming that everyone's familiar with MOOCs. They haven't, you haven't, if you've escaped them, well done. <laughs> um, so these are massive open um, online courses. FutureLearn is the UK platform, which is open university-based, and I'm going to go on to talk about Coursera, which is a, a US platform, but also has uh, input of courses from some uh, UK universities. Um, what troubles me about some of the discourse around MOOCs is, is this. Um, learn anytime, anywhere. Um, enjoy free online courses wherever you are, whenever you want, on mobile, tablet or desktop. Because it makes a huge amount of assumptions. Um, firstly, about having access to technology, access to kind of technological infrastructure. But also, it sort of suggests to me that education doesn't take any time. So, <laughs> education happens, or learning happens, in particular places to me at particular times and sometimes it can be very difficult to find those times and places so I, I feel like this is too smooth and it's too smooth a representation of what um, of what learning is really yeah. so you can't just log in and you know kind of upload it like you're in a science fiction film and then and then put it down and go away and, and have learnt you have to have time and it happens over time as well it's not just uh, something that happens in a week and that's you and that's you done <coughs> And then Coursera, equally, <laughs> on their website, and, and you know that huge claims were made about MOOCs and, and the promise of, of MOOCs, and, and I'm, not, I'm not wanting to knock MOOCs because some fantastic stuff has come out of um, this whole project, but, but I do think we need to take another look at um, the marketing discourse around MOOCs, which makes it all seem very smooth um, and easy. And Coursera say then on their website that they offer universal access to the world's best education. So that's, um, that's what they've decided they're offering. Um, just a reminder, <laughs> universal, the whole of a particular group, or the whole world comprehensive and, and, and complete. And I'm gonna talk a little bit now about um, an issue that came up last year for Coursera in, in providing education for all. So this is going back a bit, this is um, March 2013, um, and this is a group of students writing uh, a letter uh, to Coursera um, because they'd had a great time in a course, and this was a group of students from um, Iran. And I'll, I'll read this because it's quite small, isn't it, from the back. Um, Dear Walter and Ram, I'm writing on behalf of a study group for your Think Again course in Masjid, Iran. You guys probably get this kind of reaction a lot, but I can barely begin to communicate all the excitement your course caused, course caused among us. Not only did it inspire us to study the material provided on Coursera, but we also got a hold of a copy of Walter's book, and we read the corresponding chapters every week. In the spirit of thanking you for all your time and effort you put into preparing the material, we decided to email you guys to thank you personally. Um, and then they go on to say, we learned a lot, we hope you can put it to some good use in our lives, and we are forever grateful. 
and I thought that was really <laughs> a really nice letter. Um, obviously, Coursera thought it was nice too, and they put it straight up on their blogs. And everyone could see it. Um, <coughs> in fact, there was an image with that as well. I didn't really feel like I could, I could reuse it, but there was a, another image of some genuinely happy students that they'd taken of themselves. So. Um, then this happened in January 2014, and what happened was that the US Export Authority had some issues with the services that Coursera were providing to sanctioned countries. Um, so this is from January 2014, um, and this was a notice that went up onto, onto the Coursera blog saying, as of this week, students attempting to log into course pages on our site or create new accounts will be restricted from access to these resources. It will still be possible to browse the course catalogue and explore the Coursera website <laughs> and blog, which are considered public information rather than services and therefore um, so not subject to restrictions. So that was their kind of holding page while they, while they ran into this issue. So I mean, the reason I'm, I'm presenting this here is because it, for that very reason that it's difficult to make, <laughs> to make education international, it's difficult to make things international. And that, that smoothness of some of the policy discourse that Sidhu and Dalalba talk about, I think, is reflected in some of the marketing of things like MOOCs and some online education mm -hmm. courses that, that neglect the, these kind of issues that, that can come up. And we, we know that they can come up. I, I don't think this got as much coverage as I expected at the time. Um, so I decided to have a look at it a bit, a bit further. Um, if anyone's interested, this, this is all still up on the Coursera blog, but what I think is interesting is also the student comments underneath it, um, kind of outraged on behalf of each other, some students quite angry and some students saying, this is the way it is, we know, we, this is always the way it is, we were expecting it at some point. Um, so it would be interesting to do actually an analysis of that whole series of um, blog posts and commenting. Um, then this is the follow-up. So we're now on September 2014, um, where Coursera now became accessible in Sudan and Cuba. And I'm not going to read all of this out because it's not actually uh, very interesting. But they had um, a new license from the Office of Foreign Assets and, um, and Foreign Assets Control in the US. Um, but to draw your attention to the small print, because they say it's all accessible. Um, however, here we go. Um, Similarly to the OFAC general license for Iran, uh, export control regulations still prohibit us from offering certain advanced STEM, science, technology, engineering and math subjects. Um, and then they blocked enrolment with IP addresses from Iran, Sudan and Cuba to those subjects. So they put a positive spin on it that the majority of courses were now um, available, but um, these restrictions um, stayed in place. So I just wanted to give an example of kind of the things that are happening around open access and open education and, and um, um, MOOCs which are, which are problematic and actually really work against some of the initial kind of claims and promises. That if they hadn't made such big claims and promises, I suppose it wouldn't be so kind of distressing when you, when you run into this. Okay. I'm going to move on now to talk a little bit about um, the international student. This is an example from um, Edinburgh. Um, and Edinburgh runs a an international student photography competition every year, which is actually, I think it's great actually, and I wish that they did more visual stuff with more students, and perhaps they will, because I think this has been successful. Um, but I suppose uh, this image I chose because it's, <laughs> Edinburgh is so photogenic, if you've been to Edinburgh, I'm sure you'll realise Edinburgh is an incredibly photogenic city, 
Um, and it's, you can get some great shots of Edinburgh during the festival and uh, during different kinds of weather. And that's what the students tend to do is they go and take photos of, of their Edinburgh. So I think this year the theme was um, diverse Edinburgh. I forget what last year's theme was. But actually I noticed that quite a few of the diverse Edinburgh uh, photographs that were submitted are of Edinburgh, the city, the ar diverse architecture. So maybe not diversity in the way that the international office was 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 thinking about it. But the so there were lots of amazing photos like this one. Um, but this was the one that's kind of stood out for me. And this was an image. Um, there's a, a one separate category which is for students abroad or or doing study visits and online distance students are included in this category. I don't know if they've, they've put any entries in yet, but um, they're now included in this category. Originally, I don't think that they, that they were. So I don't know too much about this, but this is a really striking image for me. And, and the reason it's striking is because for those of us that are based on campus, this is from the university looking out rather than the university looking in. So I, I've been trying to pick up on some of those sort of inward looking photos of, um, the happy groups of students, the students looking into computers, and then the kind of examples from this project where students were um, looking mainly into the city. It was about the students' experience of the city rather than the students' experience of, of the world, I guess. Okay. Um, I've used this image um, quite a lot recently. In fact, this made it into my, into my thesis in the end. This is a um, like a double exposure photograph. So it's one photograph um, layered on top of another. Um, and I started looking at these images um, right at the beginning of the PhD to think about um, my experience really as a, as a researcher. Um, there's somebody who writes about um, research, doing research in your own organizations being like the anthropology of the doppelganger. So I was looking at these uh, uh, double, double exposure um, images as a way of thinking about that. Um, but what I, what I like about this is that it superimposes um, different places, but also um, different times. And this is an image of uh, London and New York. And this image is produced by a photojournalist called Daniela Zolkman. And so I suppose it's, it's not this image in particular that I'm interested in, but it's the idea of layering times and spaces and thinking about the university as international in that way, in a different, in a different mode, if you like. So not one image alongside another or groups of images that are really similar but how could we start to think about more complex pictures of the international university or of the experience of international students students sorry as, as it is in, embodied um, so normally when i talk about this it's <laughs> not very easy to understand but i think it helps to, to kind of look at some of the double exposure um, images to help to uh, think about it and Daniela Zoltman took these photographs because she moved from New York to London and she took 30 days worth of photographs before she left New York and she took 30 days of photographs when she came and moved to London and then she started layering them, layering them up for this project. And there's a nice bit from her blog that I think is also helpful in thinking about, for me in thinking about what it is, what is it to be international, to have an international experience. So she, alongside these, the great photos, by the way, I've put the the reference in the reference list. I recommend having a look at them. Uh, so she says, so now I belong to two cities. I created this series of double exposures to map the intersections between the two sets of streets and skylines. The resulting images are part New York, part London, 
and collectively represent my visit <coughs> vision of home. <coughs> Brooklyn Bridge Park meets Leicester Square, Whitehall meets the South Bronx, the High Line meets Knightsbridge. After a while, the cacophony of concrete and street life begins to blend into something more universal. My hope is in that the noise and silence, everyone will find something that feels like home. And this is another issue that's come up with me for me um, in thinking about the international and the relation to the digital, is that it starts to, to kind of trouble this idea of, of what home is and of what, <laughs> what it is to be a host nation or a home country, or you know, where, where, is, where is home? And I've tried to, to start thinking about these kind of complex connections that we all have with other parts of, of the world and how, how can we think about those a bit, a bit differently. Um, I think it's really unhelpful to use the home international um, distinction as kind of one of the binaries that maybe Anna was talking about referring to this morning, but especially if you're an online distance learner is, um, is another aspect of that, but you're, you're already at home. You never, you never went anywhere. And the university talks a lot, um, I've noticed particularly in kind of welcome materials at the moment, it talks about arrivals and departures and welcomes. And if we do increase online distance education, then we need to kind of think about that because that terminology is um, kind of exclusive. Oh, I've got loads of time. <laughs> I've gone too fast. Okay. Um, so this, just thinking a little bit more like about this, if you kind of bear with me, because I'm really interested in kind of visual images and kind of visual analysis at the moment. This is a project that Daniela Zoltman has set up with, um, I forget the guy's name, uh, Danny Gillis, is it? Danny Gillis. Um, it's not to do with education or students or anything, anything like that. It's about sharing photographs. It's about sharing photographs at a distance and then giving up your, um, your image and then someone else picking it up and overlaying it in some creative way with another image and then feeding it back to you. And so they've called it um, Echo Sight. And I've been thinking, because I'm really thinking about internationalization in terms of, I guess in terms of policy, but also for me mainly in terms of teaching and learning, I'm kind of thinking, are there more sort of creative projects that we could be doing that pay more attention to looking out rather than, rather than looking into the university, looking out from the university and, and thinking about what, what other people um, see and oh okay wasn't expecting that one next so what what um, Zoltman says about that is this is an attempt to slow the photographic process and force people to engage thoughtfully with not only their own work but with the work of their peers the act of creating an echo site is leisurely and ponderous and by the same token the act of viewing the same <coughs> images requires more visual effort to decipher than the average image in an Instagram feed um, and I'm quite interested in this because I'm also interested in time and time in education and social theories of time in, in education. I like this idea of slowing something down and then being forced to engage with it in a, in a slightly different way. But I also like the idea that this is exchanging images, perhaps with people that you know at a distance, but also um, with strangers. And there's a whole history of this with the kind of um, double exposure um, as, as a creative practice where people would used to take 35 millimeter fil film and then rewind it and then post it <laughs> to the other side of the world mm. and someone would take photos on top of those images and then you would see in a more surprising way I guess in a less a less sort of easily digitally processed way um, what images would would come back to you and that was another way of I suppose experiencing the world and we can we can do that differently now and that's just one of the images from the echo site project 
and this is live there's a there's a twitter feed and i think they have a weekly update and get people to contribute and then they also seem to add sort of little snippets from um from literature as as inspiration so that's a little quote from um thoreau there what is it that makes it so hard sometimes to decide whether we shall walk okay I was a bit concerned that I was maybe giving MOOCs a bit of a hard time in this presentation, so I've come back with a positive, <laughs> a positive kind of, not end to the MOOC story, because this, this is all ongoing, but um, it came across as a very recent quote here from um, Diana Kleiner at Yale, who had obviously finished teaching this uh, uh, course, CIRA course on Roman architecture. And she says, I'm th thrilled by the range and diversity of images of Roman architectural ruins that were provided by learners in my MOOC, some in parts of the world I have not yet visited. We may never be able to walk down one of the colonnaded streets of Palmyra, Syria, but exposure to them through the eyes of those who live there has greatly enriched the course experience, both for the learners in the course and also for me as an instructor and scholar. And that's what I've found. I've done some research with um, directors of online distance programs who were mainly um, some of them were new to, to online distance teaching altogether and one of the sort of recurring things is how they feel that there's a rich experience by having people not coming to the campus but being already located in whatever uh, professional or, or study or, or kind of other kind of life context they're already in so you've kind of got a group of people I noticed this particularly in talking to um, uh, teachers in public health about they have that sort of on on the ground information coming in from people in lots of different locations about the in the world, and they get them to talk about um, what health conditions have been in local media that week, for example. And um, I've had you to say that it's, they've had a much richer experience and got to know stuff that they wouldn't otherwise have got to know to know about because they they've got students that are based in um, in a number of locations. But I, I like this quote because it brings <laughs> Syria back in. Yeah. So, um, I'm going to finish here actually. Uh, this is a, this quote here is from Hawawini, who um, is a professor at INSEAD, and he's written quite a full report on the different kind of strategic models um, of international education. So, it's quite useful to get an overview of the different sort of um, frameworks that are in place from a, from a strategic overview, if anybody's um, interested in that. Um, he seems to be saying that universities shouldn't be trying to be international because you'll only ever be international if you start with that intention. You can't make, make an institution become international. Um, but I like this quote from him uh, saying that the ultimate benefit of internationalization for an HEI is to learn from the world and not just to teach the world what the institution already knows. And I think that um, a digital distance education is kind of ideally placed to kind of shift the way that we might think about this. Um, and I'm just going to finally end with a question from Lynn and Law. What might the different mode of international look like? Thanks. Thank you very much, Philip. Do you want to come and sit here now for <coughs> questions? Uh,